Hello everyone, welcome back to Inflammatory Content. It's been a while since our last episode. I apologize for my absence. It's been a crazy time. I hope you all are doing well. Since we last spoke, I joined Dr. Richard Gallo's lab to complete my thesis. He's a very well-established physician scientist, a dermatologist specifically. The paper that we're going to discuss today is super relevant to the work we do in the Gallo Lab. It's titled, The Commensal Skin Microbiota Triggers Type 1 Interferon-Dependent Innate Repair Responses in Injured Skin. There are two first authors on this paper, Jeremy D. Demisio and Cyrene Belkhoja. And the corresponding author is Michael Gilead. These authors hail from the University of Lausanne in Lausanne, Switzerland. The report was published in Nature Immunology in September of 2020. Now, before we discuss the details of the paper, I would like to say that I absolutely love this paper. The authors use many different experimental techniques, uncover numerous mechanisms underlying wound repair, and translate their findings in mice to humans. It is truly a beautiful story. Okay, with that said, let's dig in. The big question the authors aim to investigate in this report is, do commensal bacteria promote innate immune interferon-mediated wound healing responses? Why should we care about wound healing? Well, Non-healing skin wounds are a major global health problem. Unlike healthy individuals whose wounds heal up in a timely fashion, patients with diabetes, psoriasis, as well as elderly individuals have impaired skin wound healing. Non-healing skin wounds can be very uncomfortable and painful. Worse, they can become infected and lead to gangrene ultimately requiring limb amputation in some cases. If you can stomach it, try Google searching diabetic foot ulcer. Pretty gnarly, right? It's critical that we better understand mechanisms underlying wound repair so that we may help these patients. Okay, now that we understand why the authors investigated wound repair, let's examine how they investigated it. The vast majority of the experiments performed were done in mice, using a tape-stripping model of skin injury. This model is pretty simple. You shave the mice to get rid of the hair and expose the skin. Then, you grab some scotch tape and stick a piece to the mouse's back. After removing the tape and reapplying it 20 times, you'll have succeeded in creating a mild skin injury. Alright, now we understand the model. Before we talk about the experiments, there's one more thing we should discuss, and that's type 1 interferon. The name itself is actually kind of misleading, as there are several type 1 interferons. These are cytokines, soluble inflammatory protein mediators that allow cells to communicate with one another. Type 1 interferons are rather pleiotropic, meaning they have a broad range of effects. They are perhaps most well-known for their ability to promote defense against intracellular pathogens, like viruses. Importantly, however, they are also known to promote wound healing, 
though the mechanism is not well understood. After today's discussion, however, I think we'll have a much better understanding. Okay, that should be enough background to get us going. Let's now talk about this really cool paper. The authors begin their paper by investigating the mechanisms underlying plasmacytoidendritic cell, or PDC, recruitment to the skin following skin injury. At baseline, the PDCs are virtually non-existent in the skin. However, they accumulate within 12 hours following skin injury. By looking at whole tissue gene expression levels of various chemokines, the authors find that CXCL10 correlates very tightly with DC infiltration suggesting that CXCL10 contributes to DC infiltration. To confirm this, the authors injected CXCL10 intradermally and, voila, DCs infiltrated. Further, the authors performed their skin injury model on CXCL10 knockout mice and, what do you know, no DCs. Together, these results demonstrate that CXCL10 is necessary and sufficient for DC infiltration. Now that we understand how the dendritic cells are getting to the skin, the next question is, who's making the CXCL10? The answer? Neutrophils. When the authors use a depletion antibody to rid the mouse of neutrophils, the levels of CXCL10 and infiltrating PDCs are severely attenuated. Personally, I would have liked to have seen a neutrophil-specific CXCL10 knockout as it is possible that the neutrophil could be required for some other cell type to make CXCL10. I digress. The authors then do some studies with humans to see if their results are translational. They use a pretty cool model. It's called a suction blister model. Essentially, they stick a vacuum pump on the forearm of healthy human volunteers, and this creates a skin blister that's full of inflammatory cells, and cytokines. They then collect the blister aspirates and do some assays. As in mice, they see a lot of PDCs recruited to the injury, as well as neutrophils expressing CXCL10. Importantly, the levels of CXCL10 that were secreted correlated very tightly with the numbers of PDCs, suggesting that CXCL10 recruits PDCs in humans as it does in mice. The authors state, quote, levels of secreted CXCL10 protein strongly correlated with the numbers of PDCs present in blister aspirate, confirming that neutrophil-derived CXCL10 also recruits PDCs to injured skin in human models, end quote. This language is a bit strong for my taste. These correlational studies, while interesting and suggestive, do not confirm that the same mechanism is taking place in humans. Anyway, I digress. Again. The authors next aim to better understand neutrophil CXCL10 production. Interestingly, skin neutrophils express CXCL10, while blood neutrophils do not. Additionally, when neutrophils accumulate in the wound, they position themselves right next to gram-positive bacteria. So perhaps neutrophil interaction with skin commensal bacteria initiates CXCL10 production. To approach this hypothesis, the authors performed their skin injury model in germ-free mice that lack commensal bacteria. The result? Neutrophil accumulation, 
but no CXCL10 production and no PDC recruitment. Super cool. But what exactly is happening here? To tease this apart, the authors performed some in vitro studies. Specifically, they co-cultured blood neutrophils with Staphylococcus epidermidis, the latter being an important skin commensal bacteria. Staph epi induced CXCL10 expression in a MIDE88 dependent fashion. MIDE88 is a signaling molecule downstream of the toll-like receptors, or TLRs. TLRs are an important class of pattern recognition receptors. These receptors recognize pathogen-associated molecular patterns, or PAMPs. The authors then go on to show that TLR2 specifically is required for staph epi-induced CXCL10 production by neutrophils. Okay, let's take a second to summarize where we're at so far. First, we have a skin injury. This causes neutrophils to traffic from the blood to the skin to help prevent any sort of infection. Upon reaching the skin, commensal bacteria TLR2 ligands activate neutrophils, leading to CXCL10 production and subsequent PDC recruitment. Towards the beginning of this episode, we talked about interferons and how they're known to promote wound healing. So, the authors next aim to investigate how the mechanisms they've uncovered thus far relate to interferon production. As expected, they show skin injury induces type 1 interferon production. Interestingly though, this is completely abrogated in mice lacking PDCs, mice lacking CXCL10, mice lacking neutrophils, and mice lacking TLR9. Because TLR9 recognizes unmethylated CPG DNA, that is, DNA primarily derived from bacteria, these results suggest that, in addition to CXCL10, dendritic cells require DNA recognition for interferon production. Before we go any further, we should talk a little bit about what makes chemokines really cool. Because of the biophysical and biochemical nature of chemokines, many are able to bind to nucleic acids, as well as form pores in membranes. The authors of this report, being well aware of these properties of chemokines, next asked whether CXCL10 could bind to DNA. They addressed this with a DNA condensation assay, something I had not heard of prior to reading this report. Here's how it works. You incubate your DNA with a chemokine of interest to allow complex formation, and then stain the DNA with a fluorescent dye. If the staining decreases with the addition of a chemokine, this suggests that the DNA is forming a complex with the chemokine and that the dye no longer has access to the condensed DNA that is complexed to the chemokine. When performing this assay with CXCL10, the authors noted that DNA binding decreased. Through the use of structural modeling and a mutant version of CXCL10, the authors noted that a particular arginine cluster in CXCL10 is required for binding of DNA. Importantly, when the authors inject this mutant form of CXCL10 that cannot bind DNA, into the skin of mice, interferon production is severely attenuated. Because skin injury can lead to the accumulation of both host and microbial DNA, 
the authors investigated which type of DNA is required for DC activation. Using germ-free mice that lack commensal microbes, they find that microbes are essential for DC activation. But is this because the bacterial DNA preferentially forms complexes with CXCL10? The authors address this with in vitro co-culture experiments. They mix peripheral blood mononuclear cells, or PBMCs, with staph epidermidis and CXCL10. One can see that the CXCL10 comes in close contact with the bacteria, but not the human cells. Further, they show that CXCL10 is able to selectively kill bacterial cells and induce type 1 interferon production, but it was not able to induce type 1 interferon production when mixed with PBMCs alone. So it is really the microbial DNA that matters, not the host DNA. Importantly, the authors report data to suggest that this mechanism applies to humans as well. Treating a blister with neosporin blunts the interferon response. The fact that microbial DNA seems to be so important for DC activation is kind of curious. Why might this be? The authors made an interesting observation. These complexes are resistant to DNA's degradation. Using electron microscopy, the authors demonstrate that the DNA CXCL10 complexes form inside of bacteria, a locale that DNases can't reach. Further, while both host and microbial DNA can bind CXCL10, immunostimulation is far greater with bacterial DNA, likely due to the unmethylated CPG motifs. Okay. So the authors have unearthed several exciting mechanisms underlying skin injury, but how does this all relate to the wound repair process? To address this, the authors use three types of mice. Germ-free mice, mice lacking PDCs, and mice lacking type 1 interferon signaling, all of which showed a reduced Th17 immune response following skin injury, a protective immune response in this context. Importantly, the authors go on to demonstrate that without a skin commensal microbiome, wounds heal more slowly. Furthermore, wound healing could be rescued with injection of interferon. But how is type 1 interferon protective? Is it through enhanced Th17 responses? Or perhaps through something else? The authors first address the something else. They note that skin injury induces expression of several growth factors in a microbiome, PDC, and interferon-dependent fashion. The authors perform additional experiments to suggest that the growth factor production was required for interferon-mediated wound healing acceleration, not the Th17 response. And that pretty much wraps it up. To summarize, we have skin injury driving the accumulation of neutrophils which produce CXCL10 in response to TLR2 ligation by commensal bacteria. CXCL10 then goes on to recruit plasmacytoid dendritic cells, as well as get inside of bacteria and form complexes with their DNA. These complexes then bind PDC TLR9 and induce type 1 interferon production. Finally, type 1 interferon drives macrophage and fibroblast growth factor production that accelerates wound healing. What a paper. A true tour de force. So many novel and significant mechanisms. It has truly changed the way I think about wound healing. For example, prolonged use of topical antibiotics like 
Neosporin may actually be more harmful than helpful when it comes to wound healing. Going forward, based on this report and those that will surely follow, I can imagine that physicians may begin to prescribe topical antibiotics more acutely and follow them up with topical probiotic supplementation to accelerate the wound healing process. Crazy idea? Maybe. Maybe not. All right, let's finish up with the lessons and strategies that I've learned segment. Today's strategy is imagine the figure that you want to publish and then do the experiment. I don't know how many times I have done an experiment and then plotted the data and realized, crap, I missed a critical control. I've found that imagining the figure that you want to publish before doing the experiment helps circumvent this issue. Okie dokie, that's it for today. As always, thank you all for listening. This has been fun. I hope you all learned something. And if you loved it, feel free to write us a review, tell a friend. Remember, it's never been more important to spread science than now. 